You know, if you have a forest with a lot of dry wood that hasn't been cleared away by previous small conflagrations, you can have a major conflagration, right? I'm not saying that that is conflict, but you can imagine some kind of role that a regulator would perform in society. I don't know what that role is, but definitely one of the ways that it manifests is by preventing the largest outbreaks from happening or an attempt to. And, you know, one of the ideas behind some of the models that have been proposed for conflict is actually similar to this forest fire thing, which is that the conditions for conflict will simmer. And then when it reaches that boiling point, you can have one. And when you have one, it, it's this big thing, but it depletes the system in a way. And so you are always poised between never being able to have these big conflicts and having these sort of like smaller conflicts. Would it be good to prevent all conflicts or would it be bad? Would that sort of lead to some sort of special situation where you suddenly had the nuclear arm again? And I don't know. Since the 1940s, scientists have puzzled over a curious finding. Armed conflict data reveals that human battles obey a power law distribution, like avalanches and epidemics. Just like the fractal surfaces of mountains and cauliflowers, the shape of violence looks the same at any level of magnification. Beyond the particulars of why we fight, this pattern suggests a deep hidden order in the physical laws governing society. And, digging into new analyses of data from both armed conflicts and voting patterns, complex systems researchers have started to identify the so-called pivotal components involved. The straw that breaks the camel's back, the spark that sets a forest fire, the influential but not always famous figures that shape history. Can science find a universal theory that predicts the size of conflicts from their initial conditions? or identifies key players whose knobs turn society in one direction or another? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week's guest is SFI program postdoctoral fellow Eddie Lee, whose work into conflict avalanches and swing voters gives a glimpse of the mysterious forces that determine why we fight and how we may be able to prevent the next conflagration. In this episode, we talk about armed conflict as a fractal and a form of computation, swing voters in the justice system and influencers in pop culture, and what these studies may have to say about the deep constraints that guide the currents of society. Just a note that this will be our last episode before a short summer break to give our scientists uninterrupted time to work on a torrent of new research. We have some exciting episodes scheduled for our return in mid-August. In the meantime, please be sure to subscribe to Complexity Podcast on your favorite podcast provider to make sure that you stay in the know. And if you value our research and communication efforts, please consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash podcastgive or join our Applied Complexity Network at santafe.edu slash action. Lastly, we are excited to announce that submissions are open for this fall's inaugural Complexity Interactive. 
a three-week online project-based immersive course where you get a rare opportunity for mentorship by a large faculty of SFI professors, including Chris Moore, Melanie Mitchell, Simon Dedeo, Danielle Bassett, Luis Betancourt, Melanie Moses, Ricard Soleil, and many more. For more info and to apply, please visit santafe.edu slash SFI hyphen CI. Thank you for listening. All right. Well, shall we? All right. Let's do it. Yeah. Eddie Lee, it is a pleasure to have you here in our first ever in-person, socially distanced podcast recording here across my patio. So (laughs) welcome. Thanks for having me. This is great. I'd love to start, as, as we typically do, by just providing a little bit of personal background and having you talk a little bit about how you got into science and how you got into specifically an interest in the kind of research that you're doing at SFI and the stuff that we'll be talking about today. Well, I think it was last week that, <laughs> um, that actually the writer of the Magic School Bus series passed away. And, you know, I have to say that she really did leave a fantastic legacy and I'm part of that legacy. I grew up on on the Magic School Bus, um, and actually some after-school uh, science programs as well. So I sort of had this like nascent interest in science for a long time, something I enjoyed doing. I didn't really see myself becoming a scientist. And in fact, when I went to college, I actually tried to become an economics major, surprisingly enough. But it turned out that uh, I took this sort of fantastic course uh, called Integrated Sciences. And it was sort of my preview, in a way, to complex sciences. Because what it was, was a class telling us, showing us, that the way of thinking in computer science, biology, chemistry, physics, were all coming together in the context of some uh, fascinating problems in biology. So this idea that all these things were coming together was a really surprising thing for me. And I think what really sort of hit it home was when I read this book by Philip Ball called Critical Mass. And so he brought in the, the aspect of society also being part of this. And, you know, at some point in my past, I'd also read Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, which is, mm, which is yeah. the, right, the physics of, of, of social behavior and prediction. And so somehow all these things were sort of swirling around in my head. I didn't know what to do about them. And um, I ended up imagining what I really need to do is go into sociology. So I went to, I searched around and tried to talk with sociology professors. And I just talked with one, I think he was maybe at the head of the department at the time. And he said, you know, I know this guy who uh, might be able to direct you. And he couldn't remember the name, but he started searching online. He showed me the webpage, and it was one of the professors who had taught that first class, that first course that I mentioned, Integrated Sciences. So he sort of just sent me right back, uh, (laughs) yeah, boomerang style, um, back into that professor's office, and he actually was familiar with SFI. So he's the one who um, directed me to talk with Jess Flack and David Krakauer, who now I've known for a long time. And um, that's sort of where all of this stuff started happening. And that's when I started really learning about what sort of science uh, SFI works on. Um, and my sort of vague interest in it became, you know, crystallized. Awesome. Well, this is a great place, actually, to just dig right in to the first 
set of, of papers I wanted to talk with you about today, which you co-authored with, with David and, and Jessica, as well as Brian Daniels and, and Chris Myers, on scaling theory for armed conflict avalanches. So this idea that we can use physics insights to understand human social behavior from like an orbital perspective and like really much like in the foundation books you know that we can we can come at the the sort of vagaries of history from you know david would call a rigorous and principled quantitative <laughs> approach that history is not just the story of great men making decisions but that those decisions occur within a landscape of physical constraints and what are those constraints and how do they manifest themselves and this is really interesting work and I, it's got a long history that you're building on and so maybe the history of of this strain of research is the right place to start and then we can unpack it from there sure um yeah like you're saying it's interesting but what we weren't focusing on was the particular stories of particular conflicts and um there's a lot to study about any particular conflict. Um, they're quite different, right? So you might think of, say, the Libyan or Tunisian revolutions happening today, which are quite different from World War II, which were quite different from the British and French battling it out, say, in 1812. So these are all very distinct lines uh, of history in and of their own. And so what we were interested in was trying to understand whether or not there were universalities common features shared amongst these things that are clearly disparate. And as you're saying, this isn't a completely new idea. It was in 1948 that Lewis Fry Richardson showed this amazing feature, which was that when you make a histogram of interstate wars, so you count how many wars there are with F people that died, F fatalities, and you look at this histogram on a log-log plot, what you find is a straight line. And what's remarkable about a straight line being on a log-log plot is that it's that's a power law. That means it's scale-free. In other words, sort of most very naively speaking, if you were to look at a small conflict, it's sort of like a shrunk-down version, statistically speaking, of a large conflict, and so on and so forth, all the way down. And so this was very strange because interstate wars that he looked at were all quite different from one another. So why would you get this sort of regularity that emerges when you look across many different conflicts. And since then, other people have noticed uh, other interesting patterns in the timing of conflicts as well, as well as terrorism and so on. And what we were interested in was looking for some of these patterns in a more recent data set, which is called the Armed Conflict Location Event Data Project, or ACLID for short. And what was remarkable about this data set was that they didn't take all these events, these small disparate individual conflict events that would occur in a war. They didn't group them together into wars. They, they just sort of disaggregated them into, into small localized events. And so instead of having to take a quantity that's already defined for you as a battle or a war or a skirmish or just a local riot, we got to connect these in, ourselves into these clusters of what we called conflict avalanches. So in many ways, similar to to battles or wars, but without having assumed some of these um, connections from using socio-political factors. So just looking at the time and spatial patterns of these events. And what we found was that when you look at these conflict avalanches, various measures of their size, so not just how many people died, but how many of these reports did you obtain? 
How long did it last? How far did it spread? All of these different factors uh, show these characteristic parallel tales like what Richardson saw. And what we were able to do beyond that is to show that these pieces were all connected to one another in some mathematical way. And I think I had an analogy for this, which was that if you imagine you walk into a dark room and you're trying to figure out what is this object in front of you, and you find first there's this sort of rigid pillar, then you find this long sort of thing with like a hairy end, you find this floppy disc-like thing, you start in your mind developing this picture of an elephant. And the way that that works is all these pieces are connected to one another, right? They're pieces of one whole. They're not independent, separate things. And so you build a model in your head and you say, this must be connected. The legs must be connected to the body, must be connected to the head and so on. So we did something like that with the mathematics of these various features. And we found that they were self-consistent in a way that seems to point to one sort of object driving the dynamics. And that's sort of really cool because it suggests that there is some sort of underlying thing that we're just getting hints of. We haven't found it yet. We haven't discovered exactly what it is. Um, obviously, it's something about war and conflict, but it's perhaps something bigger, right? That leads to these uh, universal patterns across many different types of conflict. So you draw some analogies in one of the preprints that you've done on this work, uh, Emergent Regularities and Scaling and Armed Conflict Data. You draw analogies to uh, forest fire models, yeah. which other researchers have tried to apply to this, yeah. to uh, neural avalanches. And you know, just from last week's episode with the uh, SFI counter speech team and mm. the uh, network graphs that you see of the Twitter data that they've harvested and the way that you see these conversations, these sort of battles between hate speech, organized hate speech groups and organized counter speech groups on Twitter. And these look also like these, you know, you see these this sort of conflagration of point by point debate breaking out right. when there's a successful, an actual collision rather than just the hate group eliciting engagement to its original post, but people are actually willing to go into the trenches with one another right. on social media. And so I would love to hear you talk a little bit more specifically about this model as a like a branching network diagram. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's some really interesting figures and we'll link to this stuff in the show notes so that people can can actually get a look at what we're talking about here because it's it actually looks rather menacing <laughs> and it's in its own respect this that's you know, why this, we chose those colors yes the map of a branching armed conflict here yeah so cascades are a real central conceptual foundation for understanding uh, a lot of these different kinds of phenomena and as you mentioned if you look at neural activity in the cortex what you find are are these cascades of activity um, and it's not just just a bunch of neurons firing, you can actually trace it out to some sort of like branching process. So you imagine there's the center, the first neuron that activates other neurons, which activate other neurons and so on, sort of in a conflagration type picture. And you can also think about various other phenomena with this sort of conceptual framework. So forest fires are another way, right? So you imagine you have a bunch of sort of local clusters of maybe dried out patches of trees, and you have a spark, maybe some lightning strikes, and then it sort of 
burns its way through all these connected clusters. And you can think about uh, that analogy applying to, um, to social contagion as well. And so that's why we sort of started with this idea of thinking about conflict in the same way. And mathematically, it's, it's a very generic way of thinking about it, right? All that you need are different pieces that are connected to one another in this sort of branching way. And so you can get this exponential increase. Actually, this is very relevant in the context of today with COVID, right? So when people talk about exponentially growing processes, this is exactly what they mean. You have someone who spreads it to some other people. And if each person on average spreads it to more than one person, then you have an explosion. So we sort of were playing with this, with this framework and thinking about conflict in this way as a social contagion. And we're not sure if that's exactly how it spreads, but we can at least say that the way that it spreads is consistent with this idea of the way that it spreads both across space as well as across time and in size. So this elicits for me links back to in this sort of giant network model I'm building of this, these conversations on the show yeah. with all of the other conversations yeah. that hopefully we'll publish in <laughs> SFI Press one day, make a poster. This reminds me a lot of, of two things. One is the conversations I just had with Jeffrey West a few episodes ago, where he was talking about biophysical scaling laws as being extremely coarse and like not actually capturing all of the... Um, the variation that we would see in like specific evolutionary instances. Mm -hmm. The primo example being that human beings, modern humans use something like 30 times more energetic resources than we would expect from a mammal of this size. Because as we've talked about with David in some of the transmission episodes, the human being is basically just the visible corner of this hyper object now. And mm -hmm. that each of us is actually like a, you know, a cyborg spanning the globe with all of these electronic augmentations, right? Sure. So something like that is going on in this work with conflict. And when you actually peer into the data with uh, a little bit more granularity, you see a lot of variation yeah. in this, not enough to challenge the thesis, but enough to suggest that there are some interesting details about the regional and temporal variations of these conflicts. Yeah. And I, I would love to hear you talk about that. And then also, just to like make this kind of unwieldy, let's pin onto that. Since you brought up COVID, Chris Moore's piece for the transmission series yeah. where he's talking about super spreader events mm -hmm. and how the you know R0 as a measure of the transmissibility of a disease doesn't actually tell you what's going on in that particular church right. or in that particular right. campus building or, right. you know, so there's, right. so what are the features about the data set that you've noticed that seem to be providing insights into why there's variations in this, in the size of these conflicts right. around that, right. that mean? Right. No, that's, that's great. I mean, I, I think it's really important to point out that a lot of this work its goal isn't to explain all this variation, um, which you know, eventually we want to do, but it's really to talk about the shared common features across all these phenomena. And then, of course, it's important to mention that that's the only thing it explains. And so the features that, that I'm talking about in terms of scaling are the averages, but you can have scaling in the variation as well. And that's that's really interesting. And as you mentioned, right, um, you know, Chris Moore wrote that very nice piece where it's really 
important to mention that R0 is an average <laughs> and not necessarily going to tell you what's happening in a very particular location. And that's also exactly true for theories about metabolic scaling in forests or conflict. Um, and in fact, it turns out that that sort of variation manifests directly in our work looking at conflict. And one of the things that we find is that it's not only essential to account for the similarities between how conflict grows in different locations, but there's also variation in terms of this sort of coefficient in front of it. So the, the way that it grows, the shape of the curve may be similar, but the offset of that curve may be different. And that might depend on factors such as um, prosperity or governance. So um, here's one example, right? So you look at Eastern Somalia, weak governance, uh, a lot of widespread property, and a huge amount of conflict, uh, one of the hot zones in this, in, in this data set. But if you look at South Africa, it's quite prosperous. They have a pretty strong government, and it's relatively low levels of conflict. So even if it's the case that conflict evolves in a similar way, you just don't expect to see as much conflict in South Africa as you see in Eastern Somalia. And so, as you also said, these things will vary in time. So um, hopefully Eastern Somalia is not a hotspot forever, but maybe somewhere else will become one. So there, there may be patterns also in the diversity of hot zones. Um, and we see a hint of this. We can't say that that will be the case forever because we only look at 20 years. But one of the sort of fascinating things is that Richardson, who I mentioned earlier, looked at wars between, I think, early 1800s and mid-1900s, and he found basically the same statistics. Aaron Clausette looked at the statistics all the way from Richardson's asset up to today, found the same statistics. So there's some sort of weird preservation of conflict, despite changing technology, different countries, and, and so on, that... Uh, Either, I don't know, is should you be amazed or should you be afraid? <laughs> well, I mean, two, again, two things come up here, right? One is Jen Dunn's work on food webs and how the structure of these food webs, their patterns of connectivity, have been amazingly well preserved, mm. con conserved in their, in their form for like the last 500 million years as we've gone through all of these regime changes and what is actually living in the oceans. So that's part of it, you know, and that's that sort of begs the question that I, I asked Brian Arthur, which is, do you think that we can use these models as a way of predicting like basins for future innovation, mm. you know, and like predicting areas where we can expect p potentially larger conflicts than we're seeing? And then the other piece of it is bringing in the geopolitical component is Peter Turchin's work when we're talking about like a quantitative study of history and his his writing on what he called the double helix of inequality and social instability, where he saw that they were very strongly negatively correlated over the last 100 or 150 years. Um, but, you know, you make a point in this paper that there are other geopolitical and geographic features that have to do with the coastlines mm -hmm. and national borders mm -hmm. and locations of these conflicts relative to large urban centers population yeah so i again i know that this is sort of beyond the scope <laughs> of the paper but i'm really curious you know what other what other factors you think are playing into this and where, how that might be guiding your follow-up research in this area yeah no that's um i think what you can say is despite the fact that there are a lot of these universal patterns that we, we think we find is that there's a lot of work trying to understand the mechanisms behind 
why these patterns might appear. And I think there is yet a connection to be made there. And that would be sort of, I think, the holy grail for, for this sort of work is really understanding uh, those connections and fleshing them out. And um, somehow they lie in the, the intersection of uh, maybe social mo mobility, social prosperity, economic prosperity, uh, technology, geography, right? Uh, you can't really fight someone if there's no one there. <laughs> <laughs> Tell that um, to the trolls in our Facebook group. <laughs> yeah, it was, you could, I guess you could make up, make up stories and so on, but there, there are a lot of different factors that somehow uh, mash together to generate these patterns. But as you were mentioning with Jen Dunn's work, that's not necessarily to say that you can't get universal patterns from that. So, um, you know, this is maybe too simple of an example, but one sort of that comes to mind right now, which is the central limit theorem, right? So you get many reasons for why you get random, random like statistics, right? Many different ways of generating them. But by virtue of their randomness, you end up getting some sort of regularity. So we'll see. Maybe it's the fact that there are so many factors that do influence conflict that end up generating, uh, that, which is the reason why you end up getting simplification at higher scales. Or maybe not. Maybe, maybe it is contingent, and we, we just ha don't have enough granularity in our understanding to, to, to access that contingency. Later on in this paper, you talk about there being, you know, getting into this granularity. You say, uh, unlike canonical cascade models, conflict also includes lattice-style dynamics that evolve with geographic spread. The suppression of these dynamics away from the core could reflect social processes or geography that, that impact conflict evolution. Furthermore, our model suggests conflict is not only the result of local correlations and activity, but also of regional and temporal disorder, perhaps reflecting memory of the severity of initiating events. So this links directly to another paper that you wrote <laughs> with Brian and David and Jessica on primate conflicts and temporal scaling collapse. And the idea, you know, Jessica's work on primate conflicts as a form of collective computation mm. and the severity of those conflicts having to do with various factors that are performing computations at the level of like an entire primate right. troop. Right. So this notion that the patterns that you're seeing in conflict data are hinging, that they hinge on there being certain evolutionary reasons for right. the distribution of conflict duration and severity right, is right, really interesting. Right, I'm curious right. to hear you talk a little bit about this other paper and how it, right. it links in here. Right. No, that's that's interesting, right? What are the functional properties of conflict? Right. Is there a reason why why conflict plays out the way that it does? It's hard to say for human conflict. Um, obviously, there are reasons why people give for starting wars and so on. But in monkey conflict, there's uh, potentially one reason, which is has to do with social hierarchy, right? So you need to have a little bit of disorder and conflict in order to establish people's roles and where they sit. And the severity of the conflict at the same time cannot be too too big, right? If it's too severe, it's um, actually detrimental to society. So there's this idea that maybe, maybe what conflict does is it serves an information gathering acquisition role as long as it's not too bad, 
people have to survive and remember. Right, exactly. Yeah. If you don't, if it, you know, if it's nuclear Armageddon, that's it. <laughs> Let's, we should remember that. Um, <laughs> but so I think one of the things that we were uh, trying to study in that work was um, characterizing the features of monkey conflict, and perhaps extracting from those features um, a potential functional roles that that these things um, or these observations could 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 serve. And actually, what's really interesting about monkey conflict is um, we studied a, a, a group, a society of pigtail macaques. What we found was that the the duration that conflicts lasted obeyed a distribution. It was not a parallel distribution like with human conflict, but how long they last that distribution of duration seemed to obey a, a distribution that looked the same whether you looked at small conflicts or large conflicts. That's very strange because conflicts with two monkeys are not the same thing as conflicts with 10 monkeys. There are many more ways they can interact. Um, there are many other things that could happen, go wrong. Um, and so uh, this was very curious. And so what we found was that if you could think of these conflicts as being sort of the time for all the pairs to resolve their differences, and each of those pairs sort of took some amount of time to resolve their differences, then you could get something similar to what we found in the data with the condition that the pairs that resolved their differences later remembered the sort of intensity with which the pairs resolved their differences earlier. So in other words, if the fight started off with some intense pairwise interactions, like, you know, you bit me, how could you bite me? And that's, that's actually a very, apparently a very aggressive interaction that, that other monkeys will not tolerate. Biting. I remember preschool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And so you end up having um, these long correlations from the beginning to the end. And if that's true, then you end up getting these, these sort of uh, long tails of, of, of conflict uh, duration. So you have many conflicts that tend to last longer. And for us, what we, that was an indication of, of, this, of what we called collective memory, right? This idea that the entire duration of the conflict from beginning to end somehow remembers the beginning. And that's what we mean by... What did, what did we say in that paper? It was that the, the end of the conflict remembered the beginning or mm -hmm. something like that. So where was I? <laughs> was well, that? okay, so, yeah. you know, this, uh, I have the luxury here of kind of like going out on the plank and speculating. Yeah. But this seems to be possibly why certain human conflicts are just insane, like the Hatfields and the McCoys, you know, mm -hmm. that the feud mm -hmm. right. has right. a sort of durability built into it because of the way that the history of a family is yeah. is prioritized. Right. And like, the, you know, the bigger the conflict gets, it would seem like certainly there are factors that are keeping resolution that are like forestalling resolution. But at the yeah. on the other hand, the more abstract a conflict becomes for people, the easier it is to sort sure. of get over, sure. right? right? So, you know, this this right. is sort of like, you know, I wonder what this what this uh, approach to understanding this might have to say to or link with other work on the way that conflict between human beings has changed as war has become industrialized and has has been more and more about foreign conflicts rather than defending your own your Athens or whatever mm -hmm. from there are certain things that would seem to be kind of holding us in the United States in a position of kind of unending yeah. foreign well, wars but right well I think it's a little bit unfair to say that 
these wars are external, right? For for many people, these wars are personal, right? Yeah, and that's their life. But sort of touching on this on this question of, you know, how is it that conflict persists, or why is it that conflict persists? I think one thing we we suspect from looking at these patterns is that that these memories, these cor- the correlation in a conflict, uh, is expressed not only in the history that a people maintain about themselves, but also in the geography of how it spreads. So it's quite possible that what encodes the history of the conflict is not just what we think, right, our, the stories that we tell ourselves, but potentially also factors of the environment, structures that we build. And some of these structures are really obvious, right? I mean, we built the nuclear arsenal, right? It's going to be there, <laughs> yeah. right? Right. So, so and and actually, this is actually uh, this is really interesting. This sort of connects to some of the work that um, David Jess and I have been doing recently with um, adaptation and um, outsourcing of memory into the environment, right? Which is this idea that that there are biological organisms that intentionally uh, use and manipulate the environment to couple their bad memory or the behavior with longer time scales that they need in order to better adapt. So ants do this by building these trails. It's unlikely that individual ants can really remember what they're doing, but over the collective activity of many, they can establish these very long-lived persistent trails. And they can use those trails, too, uh, to harness resources. Like Google Calendar. Exactly. No, I mean, we do exactly the same thing, right? I mean, David has that example of the notepad, right? Multiply three times, six times, five times, 2,374. Can't do it in my head, but I, if you give me a piece of paper, I can just basically use short-term memory expressed onto paper to do that calculation very efficiently. And in addition to opening up new ways of doing that calculation that aren't accessible in my head to myself. So there is this question, right, sort of going back to the functional properties uh, of armed conflict. You know, what purpose does armed conflict solve? Uh, are there ways that we are sort of driving armed conflict ourselves by embedding it into our environment that we don't know of, that we do know of? And I don't think those questions are necessarily answered. Uh, at least I haven't seen those answers, but would be really interesting to think about. I mean, right, this is just one other phenomenon in nature, right? It's not just us that fight. Uh, we do fight with certain technologies and, and, and armed human conflicts are especially cause a lot of, a lot of fatalities compared to other organisms. So we're quite brutal. But You know, to, to bring up a, a marvelous work of science fiction that seems to have some direct bearing on the insights that you just said. I've been in a book club recently discussing the science fiction trilogy Lilith's Brood by Octavia Butler. Should I read this? It's extraordinary. <laughs> it's it's a very, very relevant and, and kind of evergreen piece of work by the first science fiction author to ever become a MacArthur Fellow, mm-hmm. a just highly awarded uh, black female science fiction author, you know, just a, a, an amazing, amazing mind. And I've been on the tip of trying to read more black sci-fi right now to get a better understanding of the world spaces disclosed thereby. And in this book, this book is about humans uh, interacting kind of non-consensually with a race of aliens that comes to Earth and finds us in the aftermath of a nuclear apocalypse. Hmm. And once they're masters of bioengineering and they want to reboot, like, reboot our planet and nurse humankind and the biosphere back from extinction. Um, but in order to do that, they kind of have to change the rules for human beings. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they do is they, re- they refuse to give the humans that are going to repopulate Earth any writing materials 
Hmm. They're the, like it's part of their thing that they all have genetically engineered eidetic memory. And so they would rather engineer us to have perfect recall than allow us to record history on paper. It sounds like a curse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Although, you know, you know that I guess that was a thing for a long period of human history, right? Um, oral tradition. Homer. Mm. The Odyssey. Um, until it was written down. Yeah, right? What is it that keeps us fighting? <laughs> is it is it literature? <laughs> that would be, be very tragic. And somewhat ironic, actually, because we're supposed to learn from history. Right. Um, but, you know, in this paper, I think it's, like you said, it's the end of the conflict remembers the beginning. Yeah. There's, a, there's another piece here, which is about the beginning. And I think that this might give us a hinge to get into some discussion about your other work on swing voting, which mm-hmm. is really you know, also very timely and, and interesting. You and your co-authors on this piece talk about policers, mm-hmm. the the police macaques, yeah. and there being like thresholds at which they will or will not intervene mm-hmm. in order to break up a conflict before mm-hmm. it becomes a conflagration. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about how thinking about conflict as a collective computation illuminates why we may make a choice to attempt to mediate a conflict or to de-escalate it or to allow it to run its course. Right. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah. Um, well, first, the disclaimer is that I'm not an expert on uh, macaque society. So yeah. so that, you know, when I talk with Jess later, <laughs> I can say that I said this. But yeah, so these police or macaques are high power individuals that i mean you know, you know in short other macaques don't want to mess with them so if they get in the fight you just don't hit the policer per usual so they're serving some sort of regulatory mechanism and maybe in the sort of conceptual abstract sense uh, regulatory control is very important uh in terms of outbreaks and contagion right so for example for example and i'm not saying that this is macaque conflict but you know if you have a fire or a forest with a lot of dry wood that hasn't been cleared away by previous small conflagrations, you can have a major conflagration, right? So you have this idea that by preventing all but the largest of conflagrations, you've sort of saved the system, allowed it to renew itself. I'm not saying that that is macaque conflict, but you could imagine some kind of role, right, that that a regulator would perform in this sort of society. I don't know what that role is. But definitely one of the way that, ways that it manifests is by preventing these uh, uh, the largest you know outbreaks from happening or an attempt to. Mm. And um, you know it, that is sort of interesting. I don't know what the computational role of conflict in human society is, but um, you know one of the ideas behind some of the models uh, that have been proposed for conflict is actually similar to this forest fire thing, which is that the conditions for conflict will simmer, right? And then when it reaches that boiling point, you can have one. And when you have one, it, it's this big thing, and but it depletes the system in a way. And so you are always poised between never being able to have these big conflicts, I mean, truly massive ones, uh, you know, think World War V, <laughs> and, um, and having these sort of like smaller conflicts. But I don't know. I don't know what would be, right? Would it be good uh, to prevent all conflicts or would it be bad? Would that sort of lead to some sort of special situation where you suddenly had uh, 
you know, the nuclear Armageddon. I don't know. Um, but it is it is sort of an interesting question to think about. You know, to pull in a, t- a totally non-scientific perspective on this from a, a rather sketchy character, I remember uh, Osho, you know, like Rajneesh, the the uh, disgraced guru that oh. had his, he brought his cult into yeah. Oregon, Yeah, had a line in one of his books that he said, you know, beware the pacifist because mm. they're sitting on a volcano. And, you know, Raysa D'Souza just gave one of the Flash Workshop talks last yeah. week on timescales and trade-offs where she yeah. was talking about this in terms of exactly what you just said about, you know, if you have small forest fires yeah. every once in a while, it prevents this big one. So, yeah. the, you know, the question yeah. is in our efforts to expunge conflict from the planet, yeah. are we really doing ourselves a long-range disservice? Are we making a, a trade-off that's actually making the system dramatically more brittle than it otherwise would be? And then th- this starts getting into sort of more archaeological or historical perspectives on the role of organized sports hmm. as yeah. a way of, of yeah. you know channeling our aggression right. into something that's less likely to result right. in... Right. I mean, you might flip right. a cop car if you win right. the championship. But. Well, you know, I don't even know if it has anything to do with human nature, right? It might just be the way that modern society is structured. Mm. So who knows? I mean, I think, I think there's a real question here about... What are the conditions required for armed conflict? Um, why does that happen? And you know, could you get, could you develop a system where it just doesn't, and uh, totally avoid this whole issue? And I think it's it's actually quite complicated because conflict is associated with so many things. You know what I mean? It's not just like conflict by itself. Conflict comes with famine, comes with disease, comes with poverty, comes with deaths. I mean, you're you're basically tearing a lot of things apart. So. It's just one side of, of the coin. And so maybe, you know, it's not policers you need, right? Maybe it's something else. Maybe you just need to change how people see one another. <laughs> yeah, at risk of being misunderstood as making a political statement here. I've been thinking a lot after talking with Jeff West mm-hmm. about his work on, you know, the branching of the circulatory system as being a way of minimizing friction, minimizing turbulence in the bloodstream. Yeah. And so if we're going to apply that kind of biophysical scaling law insight to the way that we have established our systems of governance, then the question is, well, what does a truly fractal policing system look like? Because I used to work in festivals and, you know, there is this question of if someone is trying to get into a fight at a festival, is it really appropriate to call the police? Can this be handled like Burning Man does with volunteer rangers that are trained in de-escalation mm. yeah. before it becomes a legal issue? Right. And so, you know, I, this is, I think that your work is really inspiring for anyone who's interested in the conversation around police reform and for, you know, the, the kind of dynamic governance that I talked about with David in our transmission series about how many layers of modular decision making are necessary in order to get something that is both robust and isn't going to just like implode periodically. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think I think there are some big questions here, right, that go far beyond um, the political issues at play today, right? I mean, the questions that we're asking about complex systems are big questions about the system and might uh, even question the sort of principles of the system. If you can get sort of a similar outcome with a completely, or sorry, a different outcome with a completely different 
setup that'd be really interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, especially in the context of armed conflict, because it really does seem, for at least for a couple hundred years, an innate feature of the system. I mean, what is what what is it about the system that you can change? Can you change it? Is it human nature? Is it our construction of modern society? I think those are questions that haven't been answered. And somehow, they're connected to, by the fact that conflict is associated with many of these other things, they're really connected with serious social problems that still you know, have plagued human society for a while. So I think there is a chance here, um, really by digging into one of these aspects, uh, potentially being able to get an understanding of some of these broader social issues. So this is the place for us to pivot, <laughs> forgive the pun, <laughs> here into a discussion of uh, the paper that you lead authored for Royal Society Interface on the yeah. sensitivity of collective outcomes identifies pivotal components. You know, we're coming up on the presidential election, a conversation around swing voters, and everybody wants to figure out who are the people to target that end up sending the sand pile down one side of the hill versus the other, right? So could you unpack this particular paper and a little bit of the, you know, the sort of fundamental mm -hmm. framing that you're doing here and yeah. get into the details on that, please? Yeah. So, uh, so what we did here was we started with this idea of uh, the median voter. So the median voters, basically the person who sits in the middle, right? That's a swing voter. So imagine you had a bunch of people let's imagine the simplest situation where you could just label them left and right. But then there's an odd number of people, you decide by majority, and there's this person sitting in the middle. That's the median voter. Now that's a very simplified situation. And I think many situations are often simplified into this binary choice, which is not the case. Because there are so many things that actually come into play in a vote, and across many votes, actually, right? So you never just have a median voter the voter might be a median on one issue, but not on any others. And you might have variation, right? So imagine that this bill is an obvious left-right, but you want it to pass, you know what the median's gonna do, then you change it, you make it a more complex bill with many amendments and so on, right? So you can play with this in many ways. And so as a result, you're not really asking, or we weren't really asking, what is the median voter? But once we account for all these sort of potential complexities, that manifests in the statistics, how could we identify that person who sort of plays that role more consistently than others? It's a little bit more of a subtle definition of, of median. And we call these pivotal voters or pivotal components. And this is a very general way of asking the problem, right? So it's to say that if I were to push and tug on each of these people in different ways, how would the outcome change? In the voting system, the outcome is the majority vote or different ways that people can divide up into groups. But again, you can think about this in, in different contexts, right? So Twitter is an example. So you imagine everyone sort of voting in a different way by choosing to use certain words. So the vote is not just left or right, but it's whether I used, I talked about this K-pop idol or this K-pop idol, right? So you make a choice about which community you sort of belong to in terms of the words you use. And then we asked, like, if some people were to change their words, um, would that really substantially change the collective groupings of, of other people? 
And you can ask a similar question about stocks. Uh, in that case, it's a little bit less about what you can change, but more of a sort of identification principle, right? Because uh, it's very hard to change, for example, uh, the what was it, the S and P um, spider indices, right? You don't you don't just go in and, and change the data; those are an aggregation of many different things happening. So uh, it's more just a, a sort of a way of understanding how they move uh, with respect to one another. So we took this sort of generalized idea of a median and um, try to understand, for example, in, in congressional voting or Supreme Court voting, could we identify these people that you would want to tug or push? And we actually asked quite of a sort of a general question. We didn't ask if there's one person. What if you could control anybody, <laughs> right? So I could pay everybody a bribe, but to go in different directions. And the goal would be to change the outcome as much as possible. Um, and what we found was that uh, in some cases, uh, we found certain individuals that seemed to matter a lot. In some cases, we found that it was actually wasn't one individual. Actually, you'd have to sort of control the entire system <laughs> to change things. And that's sort of interesting because, you know, it sort of hints at this idea of manipulation, right? So a system where you have to push a lot of different things at once, you have to push all the buttons in different ways, all at the same time, that's hard. That's complex. Whereas if you just pay this one guy and you get all the votes your way, well, great. <laughs> I know exactly what to do. So we sort of look for that signal. And uh, I, I guess maybe I'll point out one of the examples that we looked at, which was uh, the Supreme Court. And this is not the modern Supreme Court. This is the Rehnquist, the second Rehnquist Court, which was from 94 to 2005 when William Rehnquist was uh, chief justice. And uh, what we found was sort of the, the primary signal was not about O'Connor and Kennedy, who are presumably the median voters that matter the most. And that's that's conventional wisdom. And that was really interesting, right? So it suggests that there's something more complicated going on. Um, I think given some of the work I've done, that's not so surprising. But as it turns out, that it's a little bit more subtle, right? It's not that power is totally diffused throughout the court. If you ask whether courts, whether a vote was liberal or conservative, and there's some ambiguity here in how you determine whether something is liberal or conservative. But sort of pushing those aside for the moment, if you just ask whether uh, the decision was conservative or liberal, and you asked who was the sort of most influential according to this measure, then you do find O'Connor and Kennedy. So somehow the fact that you can identify them as being important voters hinges on your interpretation of their votes as partisan. Hmm. If you don't, if you don't, if you forget about partisan, you just say they voted in these ways, then they don't, they don't seem to be important. So somehow, um, right, the statistics are telling us something potentially very interesting, which is that influence is not only a measure of the changes that someone can impose, but your interpretation of those changes as well. Gosh, you know, I'm just thinking about this in light of research that was done right before the 2016 U.S. presidential election mm. on search result ranking. I forget who it was that published this, but they were talking about the difference in uh, a news item making it to the top search result versus the second search result mm -hmm. and how they were able to swing by modulating that across yeah. the entire population of people actually issuing these searches they were able to swing electoral results by up to 25% in one direction or the other. And they actually tested this on some mayoral election in India where they were able to demonstrate that they were 
they were able to throw uh, they didn't actually do it oh I it was see. Okay. it was it was <laughs> uh, a like a retrodiction of of results yeah. that had happened like a matter of weeks before yeah but they were i mean they basically said look you know the search companies need to be aware that mm. the structure of accountability within these organizations when you have an opaque mm -hmm. algorithm mm -hmm. for search results mm -hmm. and the company they can throw somebody under the bus mm -hmm. who was you know working under non-disclosure on the algorithm and say oh this was a, a rogue agent we lack effective safeguards in society to prevent this kind of thing from happening because the kind of manipulation at scale that you're talking about does seem possible right right i Right. So what you're saying is that it's not just um, the facts that you give people, but the salience of those facts. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's actually very uh, subtle because, you know, I certainly actually, I, you know, it was just last, was it this past week um, I heard a talk uh, about this, but I just can't, can't for the God of me remember. <laughs> um, but something about salience being really important for um, determining how people interpret events around them. So there's another dimension of this paper. Uh, in your discussion on this paper, you're, you're talking about this not only in terms of voting results, but in the susceptibility of population to disease or disinformation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, David and Jeffrey and, and many other people at SFI have written about, and we, you know, we had uh, Laurent Hébert Dufresne and mm -hmm. Sam Scarpino on the show also recently talking about uh, cultural contagions. Yeah. And so I'm trying to wrap my head around how this yeah. model could inform a strategy for fighting disinformation in this right, way. Right. And like, what would that look right. like? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to make that connection, I think, formally, because what we're looking at are the statistics. So we look over many aggregated dynamics and so on. Um, and I think probably for something like disinformation, you really do want to understand the dynamics of how things are spreading. So there is that sort of shortcoming, but you could still ask, I think in that context, um, you know, how changes in the system could result or what changes in the system could result in the largest changes in the outcomes. And I think sort of to do that, you sort of have to rely on the fact we're focusing on this mathematical technique for, for studying the response of a system to perturbation. So we're asking, we're, we're sort of thinking about that in a statistical sense. It doesn't have to be in a statistical sense. But actually, it sort of connects to a really interesting set of ideas, sort of tangential to this. And what I should say is this, this field, right, is relying on this uh, idea of information geometry. And what information geometry is about is imagining that if you have some sort of mathematical description of a system, it has to be parameterized. Right? And you typically choose these parameters in a way that makes sense relative to what you're studying. But you could imagine changing those parameters, and you could imagine a, an alternate universe where a different sort of dynamics reigned. And so this idea is that these models are all connected to one another if you change the parameters a little bit at a time. So eventually you get to this crazy alternative universe, which is totally different. But the path that you take there is described by information geometry. And what we say is the curvature of, of that geometry, so how quickly it changes, tells us how sensitive the system is, right? So if I change this parameter a tiny amount, and all of a sudden I'm, I am in this alternative universe, then it's highly sensitive. It's highly sensitive to perturbation. 
right? Whereas if it's totally insensitive to changes, then this parameter almost doesn't matter, right? You basically get the same universe. It's slightly different. Maybe the colors of the cars <laughs> are not quite the same, but it's almost exactly the same. And what it turns out to be the case in a lot of physical models of the world is that you have many parameters that actually don't matter, and you have a few parameters that really do. So, for example, the bio in the biology of a cell, you have these sophisticated models with tons of parameters that you can never hope to measure. And in fact, you can't really measure them anyway. Okay, But if you plug those values in to the mathematical model, you basically get a cell that works. So this is incredible because you're sometimes off by 100%, 200%, but it still works. Why? It's because the information geometry is actually multidimensional. And in some directions of parameter space, it's totally flat. So all the universes look exactly the same along that dimension. And it's very, very sharp along some other dimension. So you have to get some things right, and those things matter a lot, but most things don't matter. And so this idea that you have this hierarchy of sensitivity, right, is what allows us to understand the, the world. Because if everything mattered, everything's out the window. You can never do that. You can never understand nature. But the fact that there's a hierarchy means that I can first build a model that's sort of right, right, Newton's model, or Copernicus's model, it's sort of right, it's not exactly right, but it's good enough that people believe me. And then, you know, Newton comes by, and then Einstein comes by, but all of those additional features are smaller and smaller. And so that's what I mean by hierarchy of parameters, right? And so that's what allows us to, well, that's a claim, but, you know, that's that's what makes the, the universe easy to learn about, and hopefully that is true generally. It's not, it's not clear that that's true for every complex system, right? Which is why complex systems are, are difficult. But what's sort of interesting is in the context of pivotal components is if there is such an hierarchy, then it means that this system is easier to control, right? Because you don't need every degree of freedom. So perhaps, perhaps in order to facilitate diffusion of power, you want to design systems that are completely impossible to control unless you have all the fingers on the right triggers at the right time. Whereas if you want it to be controllable, then you need to design it with this idea in mind. And you can imagine situations where you want A and you don't want B, or you want controllability and you don't want uh, non-controllability. And that's sort of the connection, the long-winded way of getting to this connection with um, uh, you know, uh, susceptibility in, say, disinformation is one might want to ask, how are these systems designed? And are they designed in a way that makes them easily manipulated or makes them hard to manipulate? And do you want one or the other? Because, you know, it could be that disinformation is really hard to root out when things are very decentralized, mm -hmm, yeah. right? So it may actually be a clash of values, right? You may actually want one thing, but it just leads to the wrong thing. I'm reminded of, uh, was it around the 2004 presidential election? Someone had a video where they taught a chimpanzee to manipulate one of the Diebold voting machines. You know, you can like, you can teach a chimp to hack this, which brings us back all the way back around to the yeah. primate stuff. Yeah. You know, as somebody who has a lifelong abiding interest in both the sort of uh, philosophy around evolutionary theory, as well as time travel fiction. Yeah. You know, these, what you just described are the two sort of worldviews that you see at war in the debate over evolutionary contingency versus inevitability. Yeah. You know, it's, it's ultimately it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a dispute between two different models. Like, do you have Ashton Kutcher's butterfly effect time travel where every, you know, like you keep 
changing everything on right. accident or is right. it more like back to the future where it right. only matters who sleeps together yeah. you know and that's <laughs> that's you know somehow that you know the timeline is like completely robust against right. these perturbations and so exactly you know that's um i guess until we have this figured out my advice is to like not get in the delorean right <laughs> i don't know well dude it's it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you before we wrap this, uh, just an opportunity to tell mm-hmm. people a, a little bit more about what's on your plate right now as a researcher and uh, where, what you're looking forward into. Um, yeah. yeah, what's what what are the, the burning questions for you right now and and uh, you know on the horizon in the months of confinement to come here? <laughs> well, um, I'm writing the second Principia Mathematica. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You know, because people keep saying, you know, this is the time when you really get some work done. And uh, I'm sort of past that now. <laughs> it's been so many months. Anna's horrible. <laughs> you know, if you keep telling people you're working on this grand project, nothing comes out. Well, you're still working on it. No, I have, I have several things on my plate right now um, that are sort of on and off. Um, one thing is sort of extending this armed conflict stuff to start look, really digging into some of the sort of maybe contingent factors, but um, trying to find patterns in the contingencies uh, that unify them. We're also uh, been looking, Jeffrey West, Chris Kempis, and I have been looking at metabolic scaling theory or in forests. So uh, trying to understand some of the dynamics that lead to scaling uh, in forest um, populations um, and hopefully actually touch on armed conflict in some way. I've also been thinking about acquisition of information in firms. So trying to see why is it that firm uh, lifetimes are distributed in a very sort of regular way, surprisingly, across sectors? Um, And does it have to do with how they're learning, how they're acquiring information from around them? I'm finishing a project with Jess and David um, on adaptation, learning and adaptation. Um, And actually, the idea is that we're thinking about different forms of memory embedded in, in either the organism, in its behavior, or in its environment, and trying to unify these various mechanisms or implementations of memory into a sort of optimal adaptation framework. I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but it's a lot. Um, and uh, well, then you don't have to keep fighting it, right? If you've if it's <laughs> if you've forgotten it, there's no grudge. Well, you know, at some point it will lead to some cascading failure. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, yeah. Thanks again for for being on the show. Thanks and for having me. Folks, check the show notes for a link to all of your research and the other stuff that we've discussed in here. Awesome. That was fun. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.